Good morning. It's wonderful to have the privilege of speaking to you this morning. Um, and I get to kick off a new series, which is entitled We Believe It's Everywhere Now This Morning, uh, on all three screens. It won't quite stay that way. And the reason that there's a picture of some very professional-looking builders there, I've never seen a building site quite that clean, so it's presumably a staged building site. Um, but the idea is that what we believe provides us with foundations on which our lives are then built. And so what we're going to be doing, not only today, but over the next uh, month or so, here in uh, this place on Sunday mornings, is looking at what are foundational beliefs for us and the significance that they have for our lives. And the subject that I have this morning is this one. We believe in the Bible. And... uh, Keith's already said that we've got a guy coming next week called Steve Clifford, who is the director of the Evangelical Alliance. And the truth is that Oxford Community Church is an evangelical church. And now that does not mean that we're all Trump voters. (laughs) Just to clarify that, I mean, we're not even able to vote in those elections, but there are some associations these days of that word with things that never used to be. And it doesn't mean that politically. What it means to be evangelical in this Christian context rather than some political context is that we receive the Bible as God's final authority for us in everything that we believe and do. It's about the Bible having that central and final place in making decisions for us. So so what I want to get at this morning is why on earth do that? Why would you do that? Why would you make the Bible quite that important? Well, quite appropriately, rather than just launching into some thoughts on that, I'd like to take us to a text of Scripture, and it's one right near the beginning, and it's not going to appear on the screens. Instead, I've got a picture that is about this story in the Bible. I want to read to you from Genesis chapter 3, and this is what it says. It's a story with which many of you may be familiar The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, whom we know to be named Eve, did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say You mustn't eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you mustn't touch it or you'll die. You will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, And also, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God 
among the trees of the garden. Now, as is so often the case, there's, there's so much in this text that could be said. Uh, in most of the rest of the Bible, reflecting back on this story, it's Adam, the man, who gets most of the blame. What I want to uh, invite you to do this morning is to consider Eve's situation. The serpent speaks to Eve, and Eve's situation is very much like ours when today we read the Bible. Because if you read the earlier chapter as well as this one, you would know that when God spoke the command about which trees to eat and not to eat, it wasn't Eve that he spoke to. He spoke to Adam and gave the commandment to Adam before Eve even existed. And so Eve had not heard this word herself directly from the mouth of God. She had it on Adam's authority that this is what God had said. In Genesis chapter 2, God says to Adam, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, interestingly, in the next chapter, the serpent says, No, that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is your eyes are going to be opened. And then as the story goes on, they eat it, and what happens is actually their eyes are opened. So what we see is the serpent has some knowledge of what will take place. As it happens, they are also made mortal. And so both of these things are true, that if they eat of this tree, they will gain knowledge and also they will die because it's a rebellion against the God who gives them life. This too is like our situation when we come to the scriptures. See it in several ways round. Our experience is like that of Eve. We come to this book, and they are not simply words that have come to us through some angelic revelation, through some direct speaking of God in our sort of walking through life experience. These are words that were spoken to someone else, and they've been given to us. And the question comes to us, as it did through the serpent's mouth to Eve, did God really say that? And then again, our situation is like Eve's, because so often our experience of life or the experience of other people is brought before us to say, well, it, it can't mean what you thought it meant. What you've received seemingly as the word of God, it doesn't seem to be enough. There's more understanding that's not being given to you through this. So can you really take it that seriously? Eve's situation is so much like our situation as we come to the text of Scripture. It's come through someone else. And there's a question of whether we would not be just a little bit naive to take it as it is. I only know that God has sent his son to die for me and that I may be forgiven and receive new life that will last for eternity. I only know that 
because it's been passed on to me. It's been written down, passed on to me. I only know that God has forbidden stealing and lying and adultery because it's been passed on to me. Same is true for you as well. The Bible says a number of things that come to us through other people and at times may seem contrary to our experience. And I want to suggest to you that those words of the serpent ring in our ears today. Did God really say the words that have been passed on to you? Or to put it back to the Bible, is the Bible really the word of God? It's the same question that has rung down through the centuries and occupied people of many generations. We often think of the Bible as a single book, but actually, there's a nice infographic. If you want to look at that, it's got loads of detail. What you can't see in the small numbers is the estimated dates of writing and all sorts of things. Where it says Chalice in the bottom right-hand corner there, there is a chalice.com where you can find this and much more besides if you want aesthetically pleasing education about the Bible. Uh, there are not, there's not just one book. It says there are books of the Bible. There are 39 different books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. As best as we know, these different books were written by around 40 different authors and over a period of more than a thousand years. (laughs) For much of the history of the Bible in the time that it has existed, um, most people could not afford to get a single volume copy of all of these books. There's one that's currently on display in the British Museum that's been brought over from Rome, where it's been for the last thousand years, that was made in Northumberland. It's about this thick, and it involved, it's made up of the parchment, that is the skins, or the vellum is the skins of, I think, something like 180 cows that had been processed and written upon and turned into a complete copy of all of these books. For most of Christian history, people couldn't afford all of that. And indeed, that one that was made is a wonder of culture on display for all to see. What people most often had was a shelf with as many of those books on it as they could manage, as many as they could afford. And certainly... People throughout the centuries really wanted to afford to buy copies of this text or these texts. These books uh, have been hugely popular from the beginning. There's a little comparison here for you. Some of you may be familiar with these numbers. I don't know. But other widely known, widely read, widely appreciated writers from the ancient world who have influenced civilization... It's a little comparison there. I want you to note more than anything else what I've put in bold there in the middle at the bottom, the number of ancient manuscripts that exist of the New Testament. Why are there so many? 
It's not because it's the most recent of all of those writers, because Tacitus was writing in the first century as well. It's because it was so popular. So many people wanted to read these books that there were umpteen copies made of them such that there are now tens of thousands of manuscripts left today kicking around. So much more popular than all of those other books of the time. And because it was so popular, and because there are so many fragments or complete manuscripts left of those, and because they're so close to the original date of writing, if you've noticed that on the right-hand side there, we're left seeing this, that there are no documents of the ancient period that are as well attested as the New Testament. That's a quote from a guy you've never heard of called John Warwick Montgomery, who's a professor at the University of Bedfordshire, who has earned, this is amazing, he's earned 11 degrees. That's good, isn't it? When I was a graduate student, the guy who was the senior person in my research group had about 35 degrees, but that's because most of them were given to him to say, you're a good bloke. That's an honorary degree. Had them from all across Europe. That's lovely. This guy's earned 11 degrees, and with his width of learning, has said something that actually others who've looked at the same subject would also say. The New Testament stands out. And it stands out precisely because it was so popular, and that's why we have so many copies of it. And uh, it was so popular because it was seen to be so good. The list of books that makes up this New Testament and therefore completed a list of the books in the Bible as a whole was decisively agreed by a meeting of church leaders around about 400 AD. But it wasn't that the church made these books holy. But rather, that what the church did at that time was recognize the power that there is in these texts. They recognized that what had been passed on to them had a power in it that was not simply a human power. It was something deeper and stronger and truer. In fact, the term that's used within the text of the Bible itself to describe this is a Greek word, which is theopneustos, which literally means God-breathed. That these texts are somehow breathed out by God. They are his word. Uh, That's also, by the way, where we get the English word inspired from. It's to do with breathing and that something would have come in that was living. Actually, the Greek word that's in the uh, theopneustos, the root thing there, it means, well, theos is God, and the word pneuma means breath. It's where we get our new word pneumatics from as well. It's about air and its movement. But in Greek and also in Hebrew, that the, there was one word, in Greek it's pneuma, in Hebrew it's ruach, It's one word that is used to mean air or wind or breath, and the very same word that is used to say spirit. And so where it says that these texts are God, it's often translated into English as God-breathed, we could equally say that the Bible is spirited by God. 
that somehow God's spirit is in it. And then, as we look at that breathing out of God, we find that when God spoke and texts were written, I'm skimming over the processes by which we imagine that the writing may have happened. If you're interested in that, you can look into it. But what I want to say to you is that as God breathed and texts were written that have come down to us that have been recognized to have this surpassing power, um, they came in a whole bunch of different styles. There's stories and law codes and poetry and oracles spoken out by prophets, and there's wisdom and there's letters. And you may be less familiar with the last word, apocalyptic, is a very specific style of writing which we find in the very last book of the Bible called the book of Revelation, which is very different in its style of writing to pretty much the rest of the Bible. There's a bit in the Old Testament prophet of Zechariah that's a bit similar. Um, But there are these differing styles. Now, why am I telling you that? Well, it's partly just because it's true, but it's also because of this. Some of you may have been brought up to think of the Bible as like a Haynes manual for humanity, Uh, Some of you may have been brought up going to Sunday school or wherever else thinking that this is how we see the Bible. It's commandments given to us. It's a manual for how to live. Or you may have been told this. Have you ever had this? The Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. (laughs) This way of looking at the Bible, which will be familiar to some, emphasizes the commands of Scripture, and indeed there are many commands in Scripture. But today, it is widely recognized that given all of that range of history and of styles that I've just described, it's not really satisfactory to sum up the whole of the Bible as an instruction book, that it is is richer than being a manual for life, And instead, people have suggested that maybe this is a better way of looking at the thing, that the whole of the Bible, even though there are many books written in different centuries, that together they do form one coherent story through history. And not only is there one big story that's worked out through all of these texts, but actually it's the story of our lives. Since we can see that the Bible tells the story that are like the earlier chapters of a big story in which we are now living the later chapters out. It's the story of God's dealing with his people. And those of us who have found Jesus or have been found by him find ourselves to be part of that same story of the people of God. So which is it? Is it, is it this? If it's not enough to think of it as a manual? Is it enough to think of it as a story? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that it's at least both of those things. And uh, given that there is wisdom and there's prophecy, and what we can say is this, that the Bible together forms a wonderful, a complex story. That story serves to draw us in, and through it, we can hear God's authoritative commands to us. This is why 
In this church, we believe in the Bible. The story, the story of, that's found in, in these pages, has drawn us in. We read it and we found that it tells somehow with power the story of our lives. It explains us. It tells us who we are and what's going on in our lives and where our lives are going. Not only that, but it gives us instruction. It gives us wisdom. It shows us uh, how it is that we are to live. And as we've stepped out to live in those ways, we found those to be good foundations that have led to good things happening in our lives. So I want to finish by turning to another passage of the Old Testament, which hopefully will leave you this morning with a feel for what I'm trying to communicate. And the passage I have in mind is Joshua 5 and 6. This is a story from the time when the people of Israel, some hundreds of years after Jacob had wrestled with God and his name had been changed to Israel, all of his descendants together as a number of tribes by then had left Egypt where they were in slavery. It's the story of the Exodus. And they were on the cusp of entering the land of Canaan. They'd been through a number of processes, including all of the men just being circumcised. God bless them. (laughs) And then they were approaching the very first of the fortified cities that that they were going to have to address in order to be able to live in this land of Canaan. Note that this movement of the people of Israel into the land of Canaan, it wasn't just about the Israelites. It would be wrong for us to think that that story from all those years ago is basically a version of the modern Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Strangely enough, history doesn't quite repeat itself. And what was going on here was not only that the Israelites were being given a land in which to, a spacious place in which they might live. It wasn't just about them finding a place to live, but actually there was a kind of wickedness and cruelty, including child sacrifice and an abuse of the poor, a naked exercise of power that was going on amongst the tribes already living there. And and it was time for that injustice to be addressed too. So anyway, as they are approaching Jericho, this is the story from Joshua 5. Joshua is 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 the commander of the people of Israel. And it says in verse 13, now, oh, here we go. I've got a thing. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I've now come. And then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence, and he asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And then, at the beginning of the chapter that follows immediately, we see what further word came to Joshua, and it's this. 
Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Huh. This is the, this is the surprising bit. March around the city once with all the armed men. Well, that makes sense, I suppose. But then, do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets in front of the ark. That's the sort of key piece of religious um, item that they have. It's got the commands of God in it, and it speaks of God's presence. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, and then the wall of the city will collapse. And the army will go up, everyone straight in. Well, there's a message to get. Talk about a message that is at odds with your lived-out experience. I don't think that... Welcome back, kids. Uh, I've nearly finished speaking, and baptisms are coming soon. Uh, I don't think that anyone had a current experience of shouting walls down. And yet, this is the word of God. And it's one thing for Joshua to have heard this word, but can you imagine being the person that he went back to and said, you're never going to believe what that chap just said. What we're going to do is we're going to walk around, we're going to walk around, we're going to walk around, and then we're going to blow it, and we're going to shout, and it's going to be great. Uh, just as our situation in reading the scriptures is often like the situation that Eve faced. Someone else had told her that God said, and did it really make sense? Similar thing for all of the people of Israel that were going to have to do the walking and the shouting and the trumpet blowing. God had spoken to Joshua. Joshua passes it on. They're like, "Mm, yeah, well. (sighs) We can always get a new Joshua if we need to, if this doesn't work. This is how it goes in our minds. And yet, I want to suggest to you, because what happens is they go to Jericho, and they they march, and they blast, and they shout, and the walls come tumbling down. It works. It happens. Their obedience to the message that came to them leads to an astonishing development, a a victory. And so I want to finish by suggesting to you um, that when we read the Bible. It's meant to be like this. First of all, we feel ourselves to be on holy ground. And Joshua was told, take your sandals off. Um, I've taken my shoes off already. Actually, it's not because I'm feeling particularly holy. I'm going to take my... I'm getting in the baptistry in a minute. But when I took my, when I took my shoes off, I actually I held back from from taking my socks off. And I wasn't quite sure why. But, you know, once you... If you're in a place where everyone else is shod, as you all are, um, it actually... I I feel slightly vulnerable. Now, I know that none of you are likely to come forward and stamp on my feet. Uh, But once you are barefoot, there's a feeling both of of kind of presence in... I'm aware of the carpet in a way that I wasn't. I'm, I'm aware of where I am. I'm slow, it causes you to slow down. 
to be aware of what's going on to a greater extent. And there's a feeling of intimacy with the place and also of vulnerability. God wants our encounter with him in the Bible to have all of those qualities, to find that we are on holy ground. We also see Joshua being called to a higher agenda. Uh, In the prophecy of Isaiah, later in Scripture, the word of the Lord comes saying, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. So this encounter with God that Joshua had through this commander of the army of the Lord lifted him from his questions are you for us or against us? Like, I'm, on, I'm on track. I know where I'm going. I've got a job. Now, I need a bit of help. Are you going to help or not? And instead, he gets this brilliant answer. Yeah, neither. I'm not for you or against you. The question is, are you, are you with me? Says the commander of the army of the Lord. You've, you're, you've, <laughs> there's another level for you to get to in your understanding And similarly, as we read the scriptures, we often say, well, I want to know the answer to this. I'm facing this challenge. What does the Bible have to say? Or I want some help with this. God, if I look through your word, will you give me something that's going to help with it? And so often we find that as we read the pages of scripture, they don't really answer our questions, but they give us better questions. They reorientate our whole way of thinking to another higher agenda, which does us good because it lines us up better with reality. And then thirdly, there is an obedience to the message that leads to an astonishing victory. And I want to uh, finish on this note, that there is blessing to be found in not only reading these texts, but in doing what they say. There is an astonishing sort of power. Really, as I said, the early church recognized which books to put into this library of books because they found that some texts just had a peculiar and surpassing power. They're like, well, that one's in. That one's in. And that one, it's interesting. It's not God-breathed. We'll put it on a different shelf. But these ones... These ones, we find the power of God is at work in them. And when we shape our lives according to them, when we obey, amazing things happen. For the Israelites, it was the the walls of Jericho falling and much else besides. And there are many, many testimonies in this room of people doing things that wouldn't have made sense except God said to do it and wonderful things have followed. You know, one of those things that God says to do in the Bible is this, uh, and that's what we're going to do now. The Bible says very clearly, repent, believe, and be baptized. And there are some people this morning that have read those words and may have, could have probably preached my sermon for me instead of me. Might have liked to, I don't know. And say yes to that. I hear that word and I want to follow it and I trust that blessing is going to follow. So, baptisms, here we come.